Well, good morning again, everyone. We're uh, reading Mark's Gospel together, and this morning we're going to look together at a teaching uh, from Jesus that was sparked by something that one of his disciples, John, uh, said to him. And when we read it, you might notice that it sounds like maybe Jesus is kind of jumping all over the place, or maybe that Mark has just collected a bunch of Jesus' teachings into one place, but I hope that we'll see by the end of it how it all hangs together. So let me read from Mark 9 for us. You can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed, or you can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Mark 9. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that, that you would use this teaching from Jesus, this word that we've just read and heard together, that you would use it to point us to him more clearly and more fully. That you'd meet us in the places where we find ourselves this morning, those of us who are in faith and those of us who are outside of faith, those of us who are in pain, those of us who have lots of joy, those of us who aren't sure how we feel. Father, meet all of us exactly where we are through this word and show us Jesus' grace more clearly and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I am uh, guessing that most of us here this morning are familiar with the game, the board game Monopoly. Um, like a lot of you, I'm sure, I learned how to play it as a kid. Uh, for those of you who aren't uh, familiar with Monopoly, it's billed as a, as a real, a real estate trading game. Uh, and it works this way. Everybody starts with the same amount of resources, and they make their way around the board buying things and developing properties and collecting rent when other people land on their properties. And the goal of the game is really, really simple. The winner is the one who has everything in the end. <laughs> the winner is the one who manages to corral all of the money, all of the property, all of the houses, all of the hotels, and who leaves everyone else with nothing. 
Now, I played Monopoly a lot as a kid, and I loved it when I won. But it seemed like most games of Monopoly that I ever played usually went about the same way. You start out hopeful and happy. You make some good moves. You get some good stuff. Um, you start developing it. But then someone else gets the edge, and they start exploiting that edge. And they just start grabbing more and more stuff, and soon they start grabbing your stuff, and then there's this line that gets crossed when you realize that you and anyone else cannot win this game. The only one that can win this game is this one person. And the person who is grabbing all of the stuff, which in my case um, was usually my older brother or one of my older cousins, and they, they would just keep smiling more and more and gloating and cracking stupid jokes. <laughs> and it was pretty much misery. Uh, until everyone else quit or got into a fist fight with that punk kid who was winning. Some of that, of course, maybe just how my family dealt with things, but you get the point. And so now I'm in the strange and necessary place of comparing John the Apostle, John the Beloved, the Revelator, to a gloating punk kid who's winning at Monopoly. Because that's precisely what's happening at the beginning of that story that we just read together. There's no way around it. John is working a monopoly. He wants to control the market. He wants to garter all the status, all the privileges, all of the prestige for himself, and to a lesser extent, for the other 11 guys who are closest to Jesus' teacher, he says... We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So just so you know, that's what we did. And that is the last word that anyone else but Jesus has in this story. And his teaching in response to John's weird comment exposes the yawning gulf that often exists between our own fears and insecurities and the wide open grace of the good news that Jesus came to proclaim and to embody. Jesus teaches to expose that gulf in John's life and in yours and mine, and he teaches to disarm it and to heal it. So it's such an unlikely moment, it's such a strange moment for John to say this thing. I mean, we have to remember in the larger story that Mark is telling us, Jesus has just told his disciples for a second time that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed. Now we talked a bunch about this last week, so I'll just summarize it here by saying that after Jesus says that, the disciples cannot make any sense of it. They are afraid of it because it unsettles their dreams for the future. So they pretty much ignore what Jesus says, and they commence arguing about which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus responded by teaching that true greatness is found in being the last of all and the servant of all. And then he takes this little baby in his arms and he says that receiving and serving the last and the least is what true greatness looks like. And that anyone who lives that way and anyone who loves that way is actually receiving God himself. 
Jesus is teaching that the antidote to that fundamental fallen insecurity, that fundamental fallen fear that all of us share to some extent or another, that makes us want to assert ourselves over other people or scramble to protect ourselves from just about everyone else in our life or to put them into some kind of safe, weird pecking order in our life. The antidote to all of that is to run from it, Jesus says, with the open hands of repentance and faith and do exactly the opposite of it. To make yourself small for the good of others, to become their servant. This is what Jesus has just taught his friends. (laughs) And for some reason, John decides this is the best moment to tell Jesus about this unnamed exorcist that they shut down or tried to shut down. Why did they try to shut this guy down? Because he was not following us. And it's clear that this is just another expression of what is underneath the life of the disciples that's led them to do all kinds of things, not the least of which was to argue about which one of them was the greatest. I mean, you definitely can't be the greatest, right? They're thinking if there's other guys running around doing things that chip into your monopoly, you definitely cannot be part of the greatest group of people if there's someone running around doing things that, doing things that, you know, diminish your brand. So we tried to slap him, Jesus, with a cease and desist to which Jesus says, don't, (laughs) don't stop him. And Jesus' reasoning is super, super clear. He's not going to speak evil of me, and he is not against us. You know, on this journey that Jesus and the disciples are taking to Jerusalem, to the city of Jesus' destiny, there are storm clouds gathering every moment, and there are people who are coalescing against Jesus in ever-increasing numbers. There really are people for Jesus and the disciples to be wary about, But this man clearly is not one of them. John and the rest of the disciples wanted to be restrictive and exclusive and private. But Jesus is just about as expansive and open as you can imagine. The one who is not against us, he says, is for us. They have got this nagging desire. The disciples have this nagging desire for honor and for privilege. And Jesus says to them, listen, the one who does something as small as giving you a drink of water, that person will in no way lose their reward. That's what greatness looks like. So this particular thing, this literal thing, is not something you and I are ever likely to run into in our lives. But the impulse underneath it is something that is just as much a part of our lives as it was a part of the disciples' life. We feel fears. We feel insecurities. We give in to all kinds of weird things to try and do battle with them. We do it collectively as people or as groups or as peoples within peoples. We claw for an exclusive corner on the market when we act as if our group or our tribe or our circle, whichever one it is, is the one that's right. We do this as a church when we say or act or pretend as if our way of doing church or our way of worshiping is the only way or the right way or the best way. 
We do this as a people when we become theological legalists and we size everyone in our life up by what they believe or don't believe rather than the image of God in which they have been created. We do this as a people when we act as if the politics of our particular group, whichever way it leans, left, right, everything in the middle, when we act as if our politics is the only way It's the only way to see things, and we bark and we snarl our way into self-righteous, shrill parodies of the people that we were actually created to be. They didn't follow us, so we wanted them to stop. And I think, church, that we can do this as individuals, too, when we're tempted into imagining and acting as if following Jesus is solely for me, it's solely for my good. I doubt any of us in here would actually say that, that we really believe that. But we act as if that is true often. And this is the kind of self-indulgent spirituality that John is practicing. And believe me, you, in a couple weeks we're going to see him do it again in an even more shocking way. And we can do that too when we imagine that following Jesus is about me and my good. It's about my growth. It's about my emotional health. It's about my success in life. And when Jesus talks about any of those things, if he even does, he makes it clear that those things come and go at this point in our lives as followers of him. Jesus isn't our life coach or therapist or personal assistant. His life and death and resurrection were as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who, he is the one who is making everything in the created order new again. And he has graciously called us to be a part of that story. So Jesus' teaching is a reminder to resist any kind of self-indulgent spirituality. And to remember that his life is not just for my good or your good, it is for the good of the world. So Jesus keeps going. He continues with some of the most graphic images in all of his teaching. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin who believes in me, Jesus says, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So of all the things we can say about that, here's the first thing that we need to understand. We've got to hear this. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He is talking to his disciples. He is still wrestling with them. All of what he is about to say is for them. Not some vague other person who's out there somewhere floating around. He is speaking to them. He is wrestling with them. He is speaking to the ones who are there on the road following him to Jerusalem. Those guys who just tried to shut some other guy down. Those guys who are trying to grapple with who he is and what it means to follow him. And Jesus wrestling with them is, by extension, Jesus wrestling with you and me too. So what does Jesus mean when he talks about these little ones? Well, he's just held a child in his hands as an example of the last and the least who are 
to be served and received. He's just stood up for this unnamed man, this guy that John and the other disciples wanted to exclude. So I think when Jesus is talking about the little ones, those are the kinds of people that he's talking about, the ones without power, the the last people, the least people, the one group of people for whom many in the world have no regard. And the word that gets translated here as sin is often, usually translated as stumble. Some of your Bibles probably even have that in the footnote as an alternate translation. And I think that's the way to go. It may include, Jesus may mean that it includes causing them to sin, but I think it's broader than that. Jesus is talking about messing up the faith of the vulnerable. He's talking about jumping in and hamstringing someone who has faith in him. And again, it's not like Jesus is pulling that out of nowhere. That's just what the disciples have admitted that they have done. They just told him they did that. Here's this man. He is obviously nowhere near the inner circle, but he's delivering people from oppression in Jesus' name. And along come the insiders, and they tell him to stop, not because they have a good reason to, not because he's doing anything that's wrong or harmful, but just because he isn't one of them. And that means that he is cutting into their fantasy pretend monopoly. And Jesus says it would be better to go to a watery grave than to do that. Which is another way of saying, pay attention. This is serious. And Jesus goes on to underline that seriousness by the next set of really graphic images about cutting off hands and feet and plucking out eyes if they cause you to sin. It would be better, Jesus says, to enter into life blind or lame than to be thrown into hell complete. Now Jesus isn't being strangely dualistic here. He's not saying that hands and eyes and feet are the problem as if we just could somehow get rid of some physical part of ourselves, we'd be okay. Jesus uses these things as metaphors for what lies underneath them, like the desire for power that moves our hands to violence or to the disordered loves that live in our hearts that make us walk towards the indulgent and the forbidden and away from the good or the greed that lives inside of us that makes us cast our eyes on the stuff that we think will make our name great. So on the street level, Jesus' teaching means that his followers, it means that people like you and I should be willing and happy to cut things out of our lives, not because they're necessarily bad in and of themselves, but because using them, participating in them, being around them, whatever, more often than not, leads us to fail to love God and our neighbors. Or in this particular instance, being around them, or using them, or participating in them, makes us more often than not fail to love the last and the least among us. I don't know what your hands and feet and eyes are. I have to figure that out for myself. It changes and morphs as I get older. 
But I can say that it would be good to think about the stuff or the thing that you tell yourself that you can never do without, that you have to have. Or to think about what leads up to doing that one thing that you do over and over again that you wish you'd never do again and you've tried hard not to. Or to think about the last time you were alarmed at how angry you were or alarmed at how out of control you were. These are, the, these are usually good pointers to the stuff that we may need to cut out of our lives in order to grow in love. And for the disciples there on the road that day, this is Jesus' gracious way of helping them come to terms with something important. He is helping them come to terms with the very real potential that they have to harm others. He's telling them it's serious. And it requires attention. I think it is incredibly telling that Jesus' first mention of hell in Mark's gospel is not to people who don't have faith. It is to people who do have faith. It is to those who are closest to him, to his friends. He really wants their attention and ours. But Jesus, as I said before, he doesn't just want to expose this stuff. He wants to disarm it. And he has come to heal it in our lives. And so Jesus shifts again and he starts talking about salt. And this is the first thing he says. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. Now we hear that and it just sounds kind of confusing to us. But Jesus is alluding to a particular way that grain offerings were made in the temple. Leviticus 2 says you should make grain offerings with salt when they're burned. In fact, there's this little commentary in Leviticus 2 on this kind of offering, and it says, don't let the salt of the covenant with God be missing. Uh, Adding salt, which of course was used as a preservative, was this symbolic way of referring to the preserving nature of this promise that God made to his people. He promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the covenant. So the disciples would have been familiar with that. And I think Jesus wants them to be thinking that the things that he's asking them to do, the things he's asking them to cut out, the kind of life that he is calling them to live and to love in, Maybe he is asking them to think of those things as sacrifices, or maybe to think of their whole lives as sacrifices, like Paul did. Sacrifices to this God who promised to be faithful to them, who promised to preserve them, even when they were unfaithful. And then Jesus shifts metaphors, and he says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And this is a call for them to live as they have been created to live. They are God's people. They are to reflect who God is, this preserving, enhancing, beautiful presence. They have been called to reflect the grace of Jesus out into the world. So Jesus is calling them with these words. And you and me, out of our fights for greatness, out of our jockeying for position and power and prestige, out of 
all of that kind of fear-driven stuff and anxiety-driven stuff, out of all of that kind of unsalty life, he's calling us out of it. And through our repentance into the kind of people that we were made to be, the kind who serve and receive the last and the least and who make themselves small for the good of others. The kind of people, Jesus says elsewhere, who are the salt of the earth. And listen, church, it's not as if Jesus is standing behind them, pushing them and and prodding them into that life. He is on the road ahead of them, and he is graciously pulling them into that life, which he is already embodying for them and for their good and ours. That's what Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension secure for us. They secure for us forgiveness, forgiveness for all of our weird jockeying for greatness and for our fantasy monopolies that we play in our head and all of our searching for glory and honor and prestige. All of the stuff that we do that gets all twisted up, we are forgiven for those things by the grace of Jesus. And his life and death and resurrection and ascension gives us, you can be sure, all that we need to live as he has called us to live and to love as he has loved us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word that comes to us and we with open hands admit that sometimes hits us hard. We thank you, Father, that Jesus took a moment with his disciples and with us to say, this is serious, please pay attention. And we thank you, Father, that he has called us into a life that he lived first for us. Father, help us to have the eyes of faith to see Jesus making himself small for our good, taking the hit for our good, making himself the least of all so that we can be forgiven and made new. Give us the eye of faith to see that and to cling to it with the hands of faith and believe. Father, do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.